Our Old Testament reading is Isaiah 25, 1 through 9. Isaiah 25, 1 through 9. Wonderful words here from the prophet Isaiah. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word now. O Lord, You are my God. I will exalt You. I will praise Your name, for You have done wonderful things. Your counsels of old are faithfulness and truth. For You have made a city a ruin, a fortified city a ruin, a palace of foreigners to be a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, the strong people will glorify You. The city of the terrible nations will fear You. For You have been a strength to the poor, a strength to the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat, for the blast of the terrible ones is as a storm against the wall. You will reduce the noise of aliens as heat in a dry place, as heat in the shadow of a cloud. The song of the terrible ones will be diminished. And in this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of choice pieces, a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of well-refined wines on the lees. And He will destroy on this mountain the surface of the covering cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The rebuke of His people He will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him and He will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. We will be glad and rejoice in His salvation. And our New Testament reading, our sermon text, Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 through 26. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. For the patch pulls away from the garment, and the tear is made worse. Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins break, the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. While he spoke these things to them, behold, a ruler came and worshipped him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. So Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. And suddenly a woman who had a flow of blood for twelve years came from behind and touched the hem of his garment. For she said to herself, If only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. But Jesus turned around, and when he saw her, he said, Be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well from that hour. 
When Jesus came into the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the noisy crowd wailing, he said to them, Make room, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. But when the crowd was put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went out into all that land. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray now and ask him to bless it to us. Gracious God, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, grant us. And what we are not, make us. Even after the image of Jesus Christ, our Savior, according to your perfect will. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Did you ever have an iPod shuffle? They were discontinued. They were discontinued, I think, in 2017. They were the smallest and, I think, the cheapest iPod that uh, Apple made. About that size. Not much bigger than a postage stamp. And um, the downside to them was that you couldn't select the song you wanted to play. It didn't have a, a display of any kind. It just had a skip button, a play button and a skip button. So you could skip through uh, your, your library of music um, and to find the one you wanted. But other, other than that, you just had to listen to everything on shuffle. Everything was just played randomly. So you never knew what song would come up next. Uh, you would never listen to a full, a full album altogether. And the effect was that uh, you never really gave thought to why one song came after another song. It was just, that's, it's just, you know, one nice song and then another nice song without any connection between them. I think sometimes we read the Gospels that way. Sometimes. As though, at some points in the Gospels, they're on shuffle mode. Right, there are times when we see, right, it starts with the birth of Christ. It progresses through his, his life to some extent in chronological order. Uh, the different Gospels will rearrange things a little bit for emphasis. But, um, but then we get to the end, we have his, his death, and then his resurrection and his ascension. Um, but, but some of the in-between stuff is just kind of on shuffle. Right, here's a little story, here's a little story. But that's not, that's not the way the Gospels are written. The human authors put thought into how they were structured, and the Holy Spirit, of course, put thought into how the Gospel narratives are structured. And sometimes it's not until we look at the way they're structured and the reason one story comes after another story that we can uh, kind of really understand the, the depth of, of what is being taught to us in the Gospels there. Now, looking here at Matthew, in our context here, right, we've been tracing out this order uh, since Matthew chapter 7, the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus speaks uh, the Sermon on the Mount. It ends with, with people marveling at his authority. And then through chapters 8, and then up into chapter 9, up through uh, verse 13, we're looking at miracles reflecting on his great authority as he establishes his kingdom, as he does these healings, as he forgives a paralyzed man's sins, and then heals him. And then we take a little break from the miracle stories just for two short episodes. One was we saw last time uh, where Jesus goes to Matthew's house. He calls Matthew, the sinner, the tax collector, to himself, and then, uh, and then uh, eats with him and feasts with him. And that, that story is clearly tied to the forgiveness of sins of the paralytic there. But then we get this text. This little text here is stuck in. Matthew's about to give us four more miracles, highlighting Jesus' authority and his, his, uh, his messianic mission. Uh, but, but here we get this little story 
in between, stuck here, verses 14 to 17, about fasting. What does this have to do with what Jesus is doing right now? Why does Matthew stick in this question about fasting here in between these miracle accounts? So why does he put it here in particular? Why is it right next to this story of him healing this woman who had this discharge of blood and then raising this little girl from the dead? Why is it right next to that? What's going on? Well, what's going on here, I think, is this, that Matthew is presenting in verses 14 to 17 a great claim that Jesus makes about himself, a sweeping statement about who he is, and then, in the next section, verses, uh, verses 18 to 26, he gives the evidence for that claim. So first he gives a claim, and then the evidence for that claim. So this is how we're going to frame our thoughts this morning. We're going to look at the claim. And then we'll look at the evidence for that claim. So starting in verses 14 to 17 here, this claim that Jesus makes. What is this claim? Look with me, if you would, at verse 14. Um, The disciples of John come up to Jesus and they say, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? The disciples of John here, those are the disciples of John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin. Uh, Jesus' forerunner, who's been preaching the kingdom of heaven as well, saying Jesus is the the Lamb, Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, But here we see some of John's followers approach Jesus with this question. Why don't you guys fast? Why don't your disciples fast? The question is... Right, prompted, I think, in part. Look at, if we look at the context, look back at verses 10 and 11, what we saw last Lord's Day. What has Jesus just been doing? He's been feasting. He's been enjoying a good meal with these tax collectors and sinners. And it's not an isolated incident. It seems like he's known for this, that he's known for you know, uh, 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 not fasting and enjoying meals with, with, with his friends and companions and disciples. In fact, he's accused in Matthew 11, verse 9, for being a glutton and a drunkard because he doesn't fast. This stands out really prominently, right? Um, everyone say, why, why doesn't Jesus and his disciples, why don't they fast? Because in the culture of the day, if you were a serious religious Jew, you did fast. But if, if, if you really took your faith to heart, you did fast, and, and you fasted a lot. It was common to fast um, on Mondays and Thursdays every week. You can remember the Pharisee in Jesus' parable over in Luke 18, reminding God, I fast twice a week. That's what good religious Jews would do. But here, Jesus and right his disciples, so Jesus is claiming to be a, a religious, a serious, devout religious teacher, and he's not fasting. And his disciples aren't fasting either. And so the disciples of John are shocked. Why isn't he doing this? Isn't he serious about following God? Why isn't he fasting? Jesus responds to their question with a question of his own in verse 15. He says, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Good question. Or picture a wedding. Have you ever seen you know, the wedding party seated up there and uh, uh, it's, uh, uh, it's the wedding reception. It's a great feast spread out on the table. But the, brides, uh, the, 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 the groomsmen and the bridesmaids are up there just 
crying, not touching anything on the table. Right? It'd be a ridiculous scene. Right? This isn't a time to fast. This is a time to feast and enjoy the, 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 the celebration of your friend and his marriage. Um, this is a time to revel and, and, and enjoy your fellowship with him and your friendship with him. So this is what Jesus is saying by this question to John's disciples. He's saying, he's saying to them, you haven't fully grasped who I am. Right? You haven't fully grasped what my presence here means. Jesus is not just another prophet or religious teacher, but he is the bridegroom. That's the sweeping claim he's making. He is the bridegroom. He is the one who has come, and his presence changes everything. Because he's here, you shouldn't be fasting, really. Or you should be feasting and enjoying his presence. By calling himself the bridegroom, Jesus is referencing these Old Testament promises about God Himself. We see these sprinkled throughout the Old Testament. God identifying Himself as the husband of His people or as the bridegroom of His people. Isaiah 54.5, God says, Your Maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is His name. Or Isaiah 62, verses 4 and 5, God says, You shall no more be termed forsaken, and you shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, My delight is in her, and your land married, for the Lord delights in you. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Another text, Hosea 2. God says, in that day you will call me my husband, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy, and you shall know the Lord. So you get these promises in the Old Testament where God is saying, I'm going to come to you, Israel, after, after I've exiled you, disciplined you for that. I'm going to come to you and you won't be forsaken anymore. I'm going to betroth yourself to me and I'll be your husband forever. So when Jesus comes and he says, I'm the bridegroom. He's saying that promise is fulfilled now. I am the Lord, your maker, and I have come as your husband. The kingdom is here. The bridegroom is here. God himself is with us. How can you be fasting instead of feasting? You can't go back to living like Jesus hasn't come. He makes two, he uses two illustrations, our Lord does, to drive his point home. First, he talks about patching your clothes in verse 16. It's wonderful the illustrations that Jesus uses, so appropriate to his culture and his day and to the understanding of everyone there. I'm sure many of them had tried this before and, and, and uh, made this mistake, right? Taking a piece of clothing that had been washed and dried, an old piece of clothing that had been worn and had a hole in it, and they take a piece of new cloth, patch it onto the old. But you've never washed that new cloth, so when it goes through the wash and comes out, right, it shrinks and pulls away and it tears the old cloth and makes the hole bigger, makes the hole worse. His point you can't take something that is fundamentally uh, new and just patch it on to something old. You can't take Christ, the new covenant, the coming of his kingdom, and just patch it on to Judaism. Something new is happening. Second illustration, he says you can't take new wine 
and put it into old wineskins. They used skins of animals to make, to make these uh, uh, containers for holding their wine. And after a while, it would dry out and get old and brittle. The old wine could stay in there fine. But if you put new wine in, which was still fermenting, into that old, brittle wineskin, as it fermented and released those gases, it would burst. You'd have a new wineskin, flexible, soft, you know, elastic enough to withstand the pressures of that new wine. And again, Jesus is saying the same thing. You can't take something which is new, a new substance, and, and, and put it into an old form. Jesus represents something new. Right? He's, he represents something that is, yes, connected with the Old Testament completely because, uh, because he says, don't think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've come to fulfill them, not to abolish them. Right? But he's saying at the same time, I'm bringing something new. The substance of the covenant is here. You don't need the old forms. Now that Christ has come, new, uh, a, a, new, a new covenant is, is being made. Um, you can think about it like this, right? Um, uh, once uh, uh, you have different, different rules, different ways of doing things when you're engaged from when you're married. When marriage comes... It makes being engaged obsolete. But it doesn't destroy the engagement. It fulfills it. Right, and that's what happens when Christ comes and the new covenant comes. It doesn't mean that the, the old covenant had nothing to do with the new in Christ's coming. That the Old Testament has nothing to do with the new. But it means that Christ comes and he fulfills it. Brings something that's radically new here. He's bringing the fulfillment of all the Old Testament hopes and promises. So by making this claim here to John's disciples, Jesus is centering all of the Old Testament on himself. All the Bible's story. saying, it's centered on me. It's all, it's all about me. I, I've fulfilled all of it. And, and John's disciples, that's what they haven't realized that yet. That, that all of this is about Christ. That he is, he is the sum and substance of every promise in the Old Testament. They, they haven't realized that his presence changes everything. And that their lives should be dominated by the fact that Jesus Christ is with them. What about you? Is your life dominated by the fact that Jesus Christ has come, that He's with you? Does your life orbit around Jesus Christ? He should, he should dominate our thinking. He should dominate our affections. He should dominate how we, our, our, our choices, our desires. He is the bridegroom of God's people. He's God with us. But what will our lives look like? if we are dominated by Christ and our lives orbit around Him. Look with me at the second half of verse 15. Jesus says, The day will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them and they will fast. So Jesus is saying, right, I'm here in the flesh with my disciples now, so they shouldn't fast. They should feast and rejoice because the bridegroom is with them. However, a day is coming when I'll be taken away. This is the first reference in Matthew's Gospel to the fact that Jesus is going to die and then be raised and ascended and leave his disciples. 
Uh, this isn't what Jesus' disciples expected. They thought that when the Messiah came, he'd be here to stay. But Jesus is going away. He's, he's inaugurating the kingdom, beginning it, but he's not yet consummating it. So this means that for you and I, how, how do we relate to Jesus? Right? Are we to fast? He's come. So in a sense, right, we are still enjoying what the disciples enjoyed. Jesus has come. His kingdom has begun. We're rejoicing in that. And yet Jesus says that when he leaves, then we will fast. We will fast. We will mourn because we miss him. Right? Jesus expects that his disciples, once he's gone, will ache for him to come, long for him to come and mourned and humble themselves before him and plead for his grace and plead for him to come again. My wife and I were engaged. She went back to Chicago uh, for her final semester of school uh, just after we got engaged. And um, those months were long, painful, miserable months. They were delightful. We were engaged. We were looking forward to being married. But I missed her. And that is the dynamic, I think, that we should have in the church, isn't it? We delight in the fact that Christ has come and betrothed himself to us, but oh, we cannot wait for the wedding day when he'll come and he'll take us to himself. That's the dynamic Jesus is describing here. When he leaves, those who love him will long for him and they will fast. They'll go without food. They'll, 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 they'll give themselves to prayer. They will be homesick for heaven. So, loved ones, this is what should mark us if we love the Lord Jesus Christ. We should miss Him and long for Him to come again. And we should fast. This is one way, an important way, that, should be, uh, that we, should, we should be showing in our lives that we long for the Savior long for him to come. Jesus expects that we will fast. He expects it in Matthew chapter 6, verse 16, when he's describing his right, Sermon on the Mount, describing true discipleship. He says, when you pray, when you give, when you fast. Right? It's lumped right in there with giving offerings and praying. Something that he expects his disciples will do. Um, and then here he mentions it again in Matthew 9, that his disciples will fast when he is gone away. And then we see in the book of Acts a couple of times in the early church where they are fasting and praying. And then we have a record as well from the ancient church. It's not in Scripture. It's in a document called the Didache. Uh, but it's, it's from very, very early in the church's history. And it talks about how Christians should fast. Not on Mondays and Thursdays, like the Jews, but to differentiate Tuesdays and Fridays. Uh, that was the practice according to this one early church document. Um, let me encourage you to consider fasting. Jesus expects it of you. Um, there are no rules binding you in the New Testament or, or, or the Old to, to fast on a particular day, particular way, particular length of time. But in some way, I think we, we should consider that the Lord has called us to this. So pick a day, once a week, once a month, one meal. Set aside that time to giving yourself to prayer, humbling yourself before the Lord, and reminding your heart how much, uh, how much you should be longing for Christ, for His presence with you. Uh, those hunger pains can remind our hearts 
that we should be longing and aching for Christ in that same way. He is our Bridegroom. He is the Messiah. Everything centers on Him. So we should consider this. This is the claim Jesus makes. Right? So this is the first thing we see. Verses 14 to 17 in our text. Jesus says, Everything centers on me. I'm the bridegroom and the Messiah of my people. God with us and I've come. Here's what that means. He makes that claim. But then we go on. And then in verses 18 to 26, we see that Jesus demonstrates this. He demonstrates who he is. We see evidence that yes, indeed, he is the Messiah. He is the one that my life should orbit around. He is my bridegroom. So look with me now, going on into verses 18 to 26. Here, um, uh, Jesus is, is talking about, right, he's just said he's, that he's the bridegroom. And he's in the middle of talking about this, apparently, as the, as the text says, when this ruler comes up to him and asks him to come save his daughter. That he's in the middle of speaking about these things, about fasting, about how he is the, the, the one uh, uh, who's, who is the Messiah and the bridegroom of his people, that then the ruler comes up to him and, and asks him to come save his daughter. And so Matthew's saying that what Jesus is about to do is going to illuminate for us what he's just said. It's going to give evidence to the claim. So someone comes, knocks at the door, says that this ruler, this local, the ruler of the local synagogue, um, his daughter has died and uh, he wants Jesus to come and heal his daughter. This ruler sees it, doesn't he? Right, right. We saw John's disciples. They don't quite understand that Jesus is the one who is the bridegroom, the Messiah who's come. They don't understand it fully. But this ruler seems to. Right? He, he sees Jesus and he, he, he knows that, that this is the Messiah. Only the Messiah could be the one who'd come and raise up the dead. Isaiah 25, verse 8, perhaps, is even in his mind, which says that God will swallow up death forever when the Messiah comes. The Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces when the Messiah comes. So this ruler understands and he believes Jesus' presence changes everything. If I can only get Jesus to my daughter. She'll be saved. Jesus gets up, follows this ruler to his house, and on the way, something else happens. An interruption comes. The crowd is pressing around Jesus on his way to this man's house, and this woman comes and pushes her way through the crowd and, and comes up to Jesus. We, we, we read in the text here that she's been bleeding for 12 years. There's... In the Old Testament, we read this in Leviticus 15. If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of the discharge she shall continue in uncleanness. As in the days of her impurity, she shall be unclean. Every bed in which she lies, all the days shall be to her as a bed of her impurity, and everything on which she sits shall be unclean as in the uncleanness of her menstrual impurity. And whoever touches these things shall be unclean. Twelve years. This poor woman. And she's been unclean. Hasn't been allowed to go into worship. Hasn't, hasn't been able to come into the presence of God in the temple. Um, anything that she sat on or touched would become unclean. 
right? Think of the shame that would attend that and the physical pain and the discomfort and the weakness that would attend all that, right? And the ostracization that she would experience and feel. But she sees Jesus. The bridegroom's here. The Messiah's here. So she goes up to him. She thinks that if she can just touch the edge of his tunic, she'll be made whole. Seems like she might have some superstition mixed in with her faith, right? Some kind of magical thinking about his, his clothes. If I could just touch that, I'd, I'd be made whole. There, there is some weakness to her faith. It seems like a partially confused faith, doesn't it? Or there's some, she, she seems almost embarrassed to come up to him. Right? She, she's bold enough, desperate enough, that she'll push through a crowd of people, risk making them ceremonially unclean, but, but, but she's at the same time too scared to come up to Jesus directly and before Him in a, come up to His face and say, Lord, here's what's going on. I need you to, I need you to heal me. She's gonna, she comes up behind Him, too scared to ask Him, but too desperate not to reach out to touch His tunic. Her faith seems mixed. But Jesus notices as soon as she touches Him. and He turns around And his words are precious here. He says, be of good cheer, daughter. Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly, she's healed, she's made whole. And this is just a reminder to us, isn't it? It's not the strength of our faith or the the, the clarity and, 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 and maturity of our faith that saves us. It's the Savior who saves This woman's fragile, desperate, fearful faith is still faith in Jesus Christ. J.C. Ryle has a wonderful series of um, commentaries on the Gospels, and he writes here, Our faith may be feeble. Our courage may be small. Our grasp of the Gospel and its promises may be weak and trembling. But after all, the question is, do we really trust Christ Do we look to Jesus and only to Jesus for pardon and peace? If this be so, it is well. If we may not touch his garment, we can touch his heart. Such faith saves the soul. See, this woman had, again, what John's disciples don't seem to have, that understanding that Jesus' presence changes everything for me. So here we see the first evidence that Jesus is showing us to back up this claim that He's the bridegroom of His people and the Messiah come to save them. He is the one who comes to take away our shame and our uncleanness and our impurity and our suffering. He gives us instead His holiness and He gives us peace. The woman touches Him, but He's not made unclean. He takes her uncleanness and He gives her in exchange His holiness and His purity and his rightness before God. And that, that just that, that this shows that he is the Messiah who's come to do this very thing. We read in Ezekiel 36, 29, God promises his people that I will take away your uncleanness. Here he is to do this very thing. How does he do it? Again, if we look back at Leviticus, right, it gave us there some information on how this woman was unclean. How was a woman who went through this able to become clean? Well, after the, 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 the uh, bleeding stopped, she was to go sacrifice 
in the temple. Bring a sacrifice to the priest in the temple in order to be made right, made clean before God again. Right? To, to remove the shame of the ceremonial uncleanness. So Jesus is taking that onto himself, isn't he? And he just declares her clean. He's taking it onto himself and he's, he's offering himself. He's going to be the sacrifice that is offered to cleanse this woman. There's another piece of evidence here, isn't there? Jesus cleanses this woman, heals this woman, frees her from shame because he is the bridegroom of his people, the Messiah. But then he gives us, we see this other, right, this other story that's been going on, um, this, this, uh, this child who's died. He, he heals this woman, then he continues to go with the ruler of the synagogue to his home. They come to his house. Um, a crowd of mourners has gathered there. Uh, in Jewish culture at that time, when someone died, people would not grieve quietly and silently like so often we do in our culture, but they would grieve loudly. They would wail loudly and lament. Um, and uh, you actually had professional mourners. And if you were wealthy, well-to-do, you could actually, you, you would hire them and you would have them come and they would do this for you. The ruler of the synagogue is probably fairly well-to-do. He's one of the most significant men in the, in the local community here. So a large crowd has gathered and they're wailing and they're mourning at the house. And Jesus tells them to let him come in because he says to them, the girl is not dead, but sleeping. You imagine being at a visitation for someone who's passed away. And someone comes in and says, they're not dead, they're only sleeping. Right? You'd mock them. Say, how unfeeling, how insensitive. Don't you know what the family's going through? They laugh at Jesus. They mock him. Again, they don't see who he is. They don't recognize, here's the bridegroom, God with us, the Messiah, come to save us from death. They don't think of Isaiah 25, 8, that he is the one come to swallow up death forever and wipe away every tear. Jesus sends them outside. And he goes with Peter, James, and John, and the mother and the father of this dead girl into where this girl's lying. And he goes up quietly to this little girl's lifeless body, and he reaches out and he takes her hand. And she gets up. She lives. She's whole, and she's with her mother and father again, and all of them in that room, I'm sure, are just staring in Jesus at awestruck Wonder and just in awe of the difference that his presence makes. And when Jesus comes, he turns uncleanness into cleanness, shame into peace, and death into life. He sends the mourners away, he is wiping away the tears. All right, this is the difference that it makes when the bridegroom comes. He's come to swallow up death. He is the Lord God, the Messiah himself. And the word spreads. How could it not? Verse 26. And so, right, here's the evidence, right? Jesus made the claim, I am the one who is the, 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 the hope of all the Old Testament promises now realized here with you. I'm the bridegroom. I'm the Messiah. And then we see it's so clear and in the next in the next stories here in the text that Jesus is is indeed the one that has come to take away our shame who's come to heal us and purify us and turn death into life 
and wash away our tears forever. It's only God, it's only the Messiah who can do these things. It's only the Bridegroom who loves us with an everlasting love, with His own blood has bought us, who can do this. So brothers and sisters, that is the difference that Jesus' presence makes. Do you see why people love Him? Do you see why we should love Him and also long for Him? Don't you want Him to come back? Don't you want to see Him face to face? In your body, see Him face to face. That's what our hope is. That's what we're longing for. He is the one who alone can make us clean and and who can give us eternal life and who will say to us in the resurrection on the last day, little child, get up, and we will. Heal our every sorrow. And so, yes, our lives should be dominated by Him and our hearts should be transfixed by Him. And what does that look like now? Longing, praying that He would come. Humbly asking for His help in the meantime. Fasting. Let's pray. Gracious Lord God, we thank You for our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. What a wonderful Savior He is. Lord, we ask that You would give our hearts a greater and greater understanding, a clearer understanding of who He is and what it means for us a greater love for Him, and, O Lord, a greater hunger after Him to come. We pray these things in His precious name. Amen.